Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Hoping that you are safe, healthy, and sane amidst the craziness that is COVID-19. On today's show, we are going to talk about the biology of trauma and the science of healing. Let's get to it with my first guest, Dr. James S. Gordon, who is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, former researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, and chair of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy, as well as a clinical professor of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown Medical Center. And the book we are speaking of once again is The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Happy to be here with you. And this is the funny point. This is the sort of the, the, the twist in the subject of trauma and the dark side and the difficult things that we as humans go through in our lifetime. And I would love to know, before we get into the book and the biology of trauma, what is it that brought you to this field? Well, I think it's uh, my parents who brought me to this field. <laughs> <laughs> because... I grew up in a household that was filled with uh, stress and combat. And for whatever reason, when I, by the time I was five years old, I was trying to sort things out for and with my parents. I can remember them screaming at each other, particularly my father screaming, my mother crying. And there I am running back and forth from one to the other trying to understand what's going on with each one, trying to make each one feel better and respond a little more kindly to the other. So, I, you know, I think I, I grew up in a, um, a somewhat traumatic household, yeah. and I was contending with the trauma that both my parents brought. And, and even more important, I discovered that I could be useful and I could be helpful. So that, that was a, certainly a part of it that, that brought me into this work. And then I think the other thing is that psychiatry and, in fact, life is filled with trauma. I mean, psychiatry, modern psychiatry has its roots in efforts of Sigmund Freud and Joseph Breuer to help people who'd been traumatized deal with the consequences of their trauma. So the very earliest beginnings were, okay, people are presenting with difficulties, physical symptoms and psychological maladies and obsessions and compulsions and fears and paralyses. And if you sat with them and helped them to talk about what was going on with themselves, you could begin to discover what was going on and also help them to free themselves from what had happened. So I found that when I was about 16 years old, I'm sure there, oh, I didn't think about it at the time, but I'm sure there was a resonance 
with my experience with my parents. And I thought this is a really interesting thing to do. It's interesting thing to do with other people. And it's interesting for me to look at myself and try to understand what's going on with me. And then, of, of course, I by that time, I understood that doing this work and being helpful and learning and being intellectually stimulated and being able to be close to people could be the basis of a career in a field that was called psychiatry. So that sounds pretty good. Well, I think what's interesting about what you've just shared is many of us, when we think of trauma, we think of catastrophic events, you know, war or crime or some horrendous event that sort of upends or interrupts our lives. But the trauma that you spoke of is not less important or powerful, but you talk about being a young boy being raised in a chaotic, loud household that was traumatic. Yeah, no, I think it's it's very important. And this is a, a lesson that's sort of central to the transformation to the book and also to all my work is that all of us are going to deal with trauma sooner or yeah. later. If not early in life because of discrimination or poverty or abuse or neglect, then in adulthood as we deal with separations, loss of relationships, disappointments, physical illnesses, aging and death of parents. And if not then, certainly as we grow old and become frailer physically and lose people we love and face our own death. So trauma is a part of life. That became clear to me fairly early on in my in being a doctor and it's not something so weird or strange or apart from life and it's it's not about psychopathology it's about human beings dealing with the challenges that inevitably come to us and i was interested both in the challenges that came to me as well as the ones that came to the patients the people i was working with and i was also interested always Uh, Even in my darker or darkest moments, there was probably a little piece of me that was saying, "Okay, but maybe there's a way out. And what can I learn from this? And that I found extraordinarily helpful. And it turned out there was a lot I could learn about myself and for myself. And then later on, a lot I could help other people learn as well. When we talk about the biology of trauma, Let's get into that a little bit, because there are certain physiological markers. I believe that that's what you're you're speaking of, that the body, the telltale signs in the body that we are having a trauma response. I'm oversimplifying a bit, but I would say that there are two basic responses to trauma. Both are potentially life saving responses that are built into our biology. Uh, The problem is not that we have the responses. The problem is that they get prolonged and they keep continuing long after the threat is over or that we stay in the same threatening situation that we should be leaving. And the two responses are very well-known biological responses, one more so than the other. The first is the fight-or-flight response, when, which is built into all vertebrates. When a predator comes after an animal – the animal has to get ready either to fight the predator or to get out of there to survive. And so blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up, digestion goes down, uh, the big muscles in the body become engorged with blood, areas of the brain responsible for fear and anger and a part of the emotional brain called the amygdala become much more active, 
areas in the frontal cortex, frontal part of our cerebral cortex, responsible for thoughtful decision-making and self-awareness and compassion become less active. And we, we're just focused on getting out of there or fighting and surviving. That's beautiful. But that response is meant to be quickly turned on and quickly turned off. Uh, the problem is that we humans carry the predator with us. Yeah. The, the gazelle who outruns the lion leaves the lion behind and two minutes later she's happily eating. We humans carry that lion, uh, a, a distressing relationship, the loss of someone we love, uh, worry about what happened in an employment situation, childhood abuse, whatever it may be. We keep on carrying it in our body. We have that same agitation, anxiety, sort of hypervigilance, looking around. We're afraid. We're ready to be angry. So that's one response. The other response is when fight or flight is not enough, when we can't get away from a situation and it's overwhelming. And if we think about a child who's living in an abusive or neglectful home, that the very people whom that child is dependent on are betraying the child every day. And the child can't get away, and the situation is overwhelming for the child. That child may go into a freeze response, a kind of physical and psychological shutdown that protects the child from the overwhelming stress and trauma. Same thing can happen to us as adults. If we've been assaulted or raped, uh, if we're a combatant in a war and we're trapped in a situation where we can't get away and we can't adequately fight or if people near us are dying. And the same thing sometimes happens when we've lost someone whom we care yeah. about so deeply and there's nothing we can do. And then we shut down. Now, in animals, the freeze response is life-saving. The mouse that's caught in the jaws of a cat becomes limp. She goes into a freeze response. As cat gets bored often enough with a mouse, if the cat doesn't crush the mouse, <laughs> the cat will put the mouse down because it's boring to have a limp mouse there. No fun to play with that. Mousy shakes herself off and runs off to the mouse hole. Freeze response has come, done its life-saving job protecting the mouse from the cat who got bored, and it's over. We humans stay in that frozen state. And often enough, fight or flight and freeze persist alongside each other, and they can go on for weeks or months or years, interfering with every aspect of our biology, every aspect of our psychology, throwing uh, our relationships with other people either into chaos or making us withdraw from other people. So those are the biological conditions that we have to deal with when we're thinking about dealing with trauma. And when we talk about stress hormones, you know, coursing through our bodies when we're in this state, I'm thinking of, of cortisol, isn't the response almost to be dumbed down as a result of it, that we're not thinking clearly, we're unable to make good decisions? Well, yeah, when we're dealing with a traumatic situation, it's not, I mean, the decision, our genes are supposed to make most of the decision yeah. for us. We've evolved, you know, over 500,000 or a million years, and vertebrates have evolved for a hell of a lot longer than that. But we're, we're, just, we're just there. We just need to react and finish with it. But the problem, and so we don't need to do too much thinking. We certainly, you know, don't need to. Uh, <laughs> How easily know. said, though, right? <laughs> we don't have to do <laughs> just, too much thinking. <laughs> but, 
No, we just want it. We either fight or we run. Yeah. And there's not a lot of thought that's required for that in that response. The pro- and so those centers of the brain are not terribly useful in those moments of of sheer, you know, terror and panic and confronting confronting the predator, confronting the terrible situation. But, you know, if uh, since we do have these large brains, the these states continue. And as they continue, we do need to think after the trauma's over. We do need to think if we're in a situation that's chronically traumatizing. I mean, the one that so many of us have some knowledge of is a relationship that just isn't working, that makes us tense and anxious and angry or fearful. We do need to think it through and decide what are we going to do with this? Yeah. It's not enough. We can't, you know, it's not enough just to run. And and we've probably been fighting for a long time. <laughs> and what next? How do we get a larger perspective? And we need the rest of our brain in order to do that. Well, we, we hear the term post-traumatic stress so often. And what we don't hear as often, maybe more, it's maybe now it's more prevalent, and that is post-traumatic growth, which I think really taps into this concept of the transformation that after this trauma, there can be something more and better. Absolutely. And, and the whole the whole trajectory of the transformation of the book and of the work I've been doing now for 50 years is that that is possible, that once we can balance out our biology and come back into some kind of state of equilibrium, we can use a whole variety of other techniques and tools and approaches to mobilize our imagination, our intuition, our inner knowing, and to make wiser decisions about what to do and to grow, to learn from and grow through the trauma. And that understanding, which now psychologists are calling post-traumatic growth, that understanding is deep in the DNA of all the world's religious and spiritual traditions. Mm. We understand this as a species. We've forgotten it. Yes. We've ended over the last couple hundred years to just look at trauma as an unrelieved disaster. It's a medical problem and deserves medical treatment, as opposed to understanding that indeed it's incredibly painful, whatever the trauma is, but that it can open us up to this growth. And that's the, the whole purpose of the transformation is to provide a roadmap and practical techniques for for post-traumatic growth. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. James Gordon about his new book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. To connect with Jim, please visit jamesgordonmd.com. On Twitter, he is at jamesgordonmd. On Facebook, Gordon MD. And on Instagram, that's James Gordon MD. Here comes the break. We'll be right back and we'll continue the conversation focusing on a trauma healing diet. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Talking with Dr. James S. Gordon about the biology of trauma. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to spend the time and get into the trauma healing diet because, Jim, you have a very, I think it's a very beautiful approach to dancing with trauma. 
Well, thank you, Lisa. I think the important thing that we have to begin with is that food can make a very big difference in recovering from trauma and creating the groundwork for future good health. And one of the things that's been neglected in treating trauma is the effect of trauma, really any kind of trauma, on our gastrointestinal tract. It affects yeah. every part of our GI tract, every from the from the head and the mouth down down through the esophagus and stomach and small intestine, and keeps on going right up to the end. And this is a really important part to understand because it helps us understand what has happened to us and why we may be continuing to experience the symptoms of trauma. So, very briefly, and I want to, this is a very brief summary, the chapter on the trauma healing diet and the transformation, I think it's the longest chapter in the book, because I've never seen anyone else write about it at any length at all. And I want to make sure that everybody has the information. So first of all, when we're traumatized, it affects every cell in our body. And when it affects our gastrointestinal tract, as I said, it affects every organ in the gastrointestinal tract. I just want to focus on the small intestine for now. Small intestine is place where we absorb most of the vitamin and minerals that come into our bodies. When we're traumatized, the villi, which are those little fingers on the cells inside the small intestine that listeners may remember from biology, those are damaged. So we're not able to absorb the vitamins and minerals that we usually absorb. And when we're traumatized and under stress, we actually need more vitamins and minerals. So we're in a deficient state right from the get-go. And in that state, we're more vulnerable to every kind of physical and psychological symptom. Second of all, when we're traumatized, the cells that line the small intestine often will separate from one another. They're usually very closely connected. They're, they're called tight junctions because the cells are really right up against each other. When we're traumatized, the cells start to spread apart a little bit and molecules of food that are in, that are in our intestine that are not meant to be in our bloodstream start leaking across the small intestine going into the bloodstream. And those molecules, for example, gluten or mm. some of milk proteins that may never have bothered us before because they never leaked into our bloodstream before, they start leaking into the bloodstream and they can cause inflammatory reactions everywhere in our body, including in our brain where they can cause anxiety and depression and cognitive difficulties. Third piece in the small intestine, and we're just talking about the small intestine here, is the trauma and ongoing stress disrupt the microbiome. The trillions of good bacteria, literally trillions, it's not a, mis, a misspoken word, trillions of bacteria that live inside our small intestine. And when those bacteria are destroyed or damaged, it has a significant effect on the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the nerve that's responsible for coming back to the brain and balancing that fight-or-flight response that I was talking about earlier for bringing us back into biological balance. The vagus nerve also helps to repair the hippocampus, which is damaged after trauma, which is a part of the emotional brain that can 
mediates stress and also records memory. And the vagus nerve also promotes the production of a, of a substance called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps us build new cells in our brain. So when, when we're under significant long-term stress after trauma, all of these functions are compromised. And our brain doesn't work so well because the vagus nerve isn't sending the proper signals back to the brain. The proteins are leaking across and causing inflammation. And we're not absorbing nutrients. So we've got to really focus on sort of on eating in a, in a, in a more intelligent, in a healthier way. Now, when we're traumatized, we want to eat comfort foods. Yeah. Right? I mean, all of us do. We do. We want the carbs, right? Yeah, the carbs make us feel good. They raise serotonin. They raise, which is calming. They raise dopamine, which is a feel-good hormone. They raise endorphins. They lower cortisol, the stress hormone. And they also help to suppress the memories of the trauma. So it's no wonder we go for those sweet, salty, fatty comfort foods. Don't berate yourself if you do that. But just be aware uh, that and I've certainly done that in times of, of trauma and high stress. Just become aware and little by little understand that that short-term solution is a long-term big problem. Yeah. And that we've got to begin to turn our diet in a more healthy, whole foods direction. We don't have to become fanatical, but we have to make some changes. In a, and they're, they're pretty reasonable changes that I describe in the trauma healing diet. I, I want to just jump in here and ask and say something about self-soothing because the majority of us will self-soothe with, you know, the, the sweets or the carbs, but there's some of us who will attempt to self-soothe and take ourselves out of discomfort by turning to substances. You know, whether it's yes. alcohol, shopping, gambling, <laughs> I mean, I, I want to be an equal opportunity, you know, addict here in how I describe this. We come to these other relief valves that ultimately undermine us. Yeah. And again, I'm very glad you brought that up because it's the same principle. These are short term. Yeah. They provide short term benefits, but there are long term downsides. Smoking also yeah. provides short term benefits. It it makes us feel less anxious makes us give us more energy and it quiets some of those traumatic memories. But the problem is there are long-term side effects. So the, the idea is just is to become aware. And this is why meditation is so important, including yes. both mindful eating. So we're aware of what foods we eat and the effect they have on us, but any form of meditation. And I, I, I always begin a trauma healing program with teaching people slow, deep, soft belly breathing. To balance out that fight or flight response, to quiet the body and calm the mind and bring up activity in the frontal cortex and make it easier to connect with other people and also make us feel less needy for these substances, whether they're food substances or alcohol or tobacco or drugs, whatever else we're using to, to, to balance ourselves. The idea is, yes, in the beginning – we may need to do that, but long term, we need to find the internal resources that can give us that same state of balance. And isn't that the gift of one's personal transformation? I mean, that's the reward, I believe, being able to recognize that each one of us does possess the inner resources ultimately 
for our own salvation and healing. That it's absolutely true. And one of the reasons I teach soft belly breathing right at the beginning and listeners can look at uh, me leading soft belly breathing on the Center for Mind Body Medicine website, cmbm.org, and all the instructions for that and for all the other techniques I use are in the transformation. But I begin with that because it gives people an immediate experience of being able to create a change. Oh, I feel a little calmer. Room looks a little brighter. My shoulders are a little less tense. We need to feel, we need to do things that make us feel better. Sometimes just going for a walk will do the job. Being in nature, being around animals, calling up somebody on the phone. Very important when we're traumatized to reach out. Yeah. These are all things that we can do to begin to take charge of our own lives and to begin to see that we can make a difference. And the food, the food will show people fairly quickly uh, that they can make a difference in how they and how they feel. Plus, long term, it can make a major difference in how quickly we heal from trauma. I just want to add one, one other, two other little pieces about food. One is there have been some very interesting uh, recent studies that have been done, uh, primarily on people after climate-related disasters, showing that those people who take a multivitamin, multimineral supplement do better than people who don't. These are randomized, controlled trials, well-done scientific studies. So I always recommend that to people who've been traumatized, people who are under stress. There's really no downside to doing it. I also recommend supplementation, at least for a couple of months, with probiotics. Those are the good bacteria that are damaged when we're traumatized. And I also suggest taking uh, significantly higher than usual doses of omega-3 fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids, say with flaxseed oil if you don't like fish oil, because that helps our brain cells to communicate better with each other. So these are some basic guidelines, and people will see the difference often within a week or so as they begin to make these changes. I'm, I'm drinking that Kool-Aid because <laughs> I know it works. I, I do know that I have experienced it myself when I've gone through difficulties, when I'm taking the supplements that you j- just mentioned, that it does help ease the burden and make things a little bit more palatable. Let's talk about forgiveness because this is a talking point within the book, The Transformation as well. And some people will poo-poo this. As you can see, as you read, as you've already seen, as you read the book, the chapter on forgiveness is toward the end of the book. I don't, I don't say to people, you've got to forgive you know, the person who hurt you. I don't suggest that right up front at all. That would be offensive as well as extremely difficult. I think once we've come into biological balance, once we've begun to mobilize our imagination and our intuition through some of the other techniques I teach through guided imagery and drawings and moving our bodies and, and through the trauma healing diet, Then we start coming to a place in which it's possible to feel some gratitude. And this is the kind of uh, the opening act of forgiveness as I see it. We begin to feel grateful for what is there in our life, appreciative. Meditation helps us appreciate each moment a little bit more. As we start to feel grateful and keeping a gratitude journal can be an important tool for increasing that, simply writing down three or five things every day for which we're grateful. So we're building a a kind of foundation. Uh, And then 
that on that foundation of knowing we can help ourselves, knowing we can use our imagination, experiencing change and quieting the fight or flight response, getting unfrozen in our bodies, maybe through moving and talking with other people, then we can consider forgiveness. And so I teach a basic forgiveness practice in the transformation that that anybody can do. But what I recommend is that as you do this practice or attempt any kind of forgiveness, don't necessarily, you know, begin with the person who's devastated your whole life. Begin with the guy who cut you off in traffic. In the <laughs> yes. Start with something easy. <laughs> Manageable. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I like that. I do like that. We are out of time. I want to send our listeners to your website, jamesgordonmd.com. The book we are speaking about today is The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Dr. Andrew Weil calls this book an integrative trauma treatment that he has been waiting for. And I agree. To connect via social media, you can do so with Dr. Jim Gordon at James Gordon MD on Facebook, J Gordon MD, and on Instagram, James Gordon MD. Thank you, Lisa. That was great. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I appreciate you and what you've created and the work that you're doing. And it, it is used in my own work. And thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you very much. Take care. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Just joining us now, today we're talking about the biology of trauma and now moving into the science of healing in the age of COVID-19. My next guest is Gary Rowe. He is an author, speaker, and grief specialist with eight books and over 500 articles in print. He's a former missionary and pastor, and he now serves as a hospice chaplain and grief counselor for Hospice Brezos Valley in Central Texas. And his newest books, there are a couple, but we're focusing on Difference Maker, Overcoming Adversity, and Turning Pain into Purpose Every day. Welcome back to the show, Gary. So happy to have you with my froggy voice. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Lisa. It's great to be back. Thanks oh, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, you and I were talking about going where there is a need. And mm. that really struck a chord in me because this is the way you live your life. Yes, mainly because there's need everywhere. It's almost like I wake up to, up to it in the morning and it's not like I have to go looking for it. You know, it just presents itself throughout the day. But not only that, you know, I think probably working in hospice and being surrounded especially by grief and loss every day, you know, when life comes down to its final moments, we begin to realize what life is all about many times and how important it is. And as a result of that, we just get really in tune with what our needs are at that point. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to do what I do. It's just such an honor and a privilege. Well, you are like a doula that takes people on mm. a journey, right? 
Yes. The way I like to say it is I'm, I'm just there. I just kind of invite people to dance and then I let them lead in hospice, which is they're, they're on their journey. And I get to accompany them on that journey, which is that's really amazing. You know, we each have our journey. We each have our own particular and I believe very unique purpose and mission because each one of us are very unique. You know, there's there's never been another person exactly like uh, you or me and there never will be again exactly like us. And so to be in the presence of a completely unique person uh, every day, you know, when we're with somebody, that's what's happening. And their journey is completely unique. Their heart is completely unique. It really is, if we stop and think about it, it's really a miraculous process, just walking with another person in their world and being with them in their world for a little while without requiring them to be anywhere else, you know, like my world. And fulfilling that need, you know, stepping into that space for another person is Mm -hmm. a tremendous gift. Yes, The people who have stepped into my world at, I guess we could say, difficult or traumatic times um, or even a particular joyful time, people that just step in and exist with you there and walk with you, you know, those kind of safe people, they don't exactly grow on trees because, you know, I, gosh, I don't even know how to say this, but I think for most people, we're so used to fashioning whatever mask we need at any given moment. And then we wear that, that there's very few people out there that are, that are safe, that are just there to walk with other people in whatever their stuff is at the moment without having to fix them, without having to critique them. But yet, if they want to go somewhere, not leaving them where they are and help them grow and help them to become, I guess, difference makers that begin to overcome adversity and turn pain into purpose. And when you embarked on writing the book, Mm. Difference Maker, the perspective was through the lens of the hospice work that you do, the chaplaincy that you do with people who are on the final steps of their journey in this lifetime. But it seems to me that the learnings, the discoveries Mm -hmm. are applicable very much to the living and, in fact, very uplifting uh, very much. I, I certainly think so. The One of the big premises of, of the book is the fact that uh, a lot of us waste a lot of our time and our energy in what I would call the wounds of the past. Now, the things that happen to us are very important. I mean, we do get wounded and that's very painful and that matters. But so often we end up letting our pain and our wounds determine our next steps and even determine our future rather than really taking a step back and and knowing that every wound we receive in life comes with a message attached to it, a message that ends up penetrating pretty deeply in most cases. Things like, you know, this is all my fault somehow. Uh, I did this or this is so painful that I'm damaged now, by which we mean gosh, I, I might actually be beyond repair. I'm never good enough or I'm never happy enough or intelligent enough, never blank enough, whatever the enough is. Enough, or, enough, just enough. Enough, enough, <laughs> enough. And, and as a result of that, at least in my case, I put myself on a little treadmill and became a performing animal as a little kid and even into adulthood, trying desperately to be enough instead of simply recognizing the truth. And I think a lot of life is about exposing 
some of the lies that we've internalized in the past and then asking ourselves, well, wait a minute, if that's a lie, then what's the truth? For, yeah. for example, if, uh, if the lie is, you know, I'm a real screw up, I'm worthless, then what's the truth? The truth is I'm unique in all of human history. There's never been one exactly like me and there never will be again. And that makes me intensely, pricelessly valuable. And that value, therefore, has to be intrinsic. In other words, it's not based on anything that I do. It is simply who I am and a part of who I am. So a big part for me of becoming a difference maker, overcoming adversity, learning to use our grief and pain as fuel for good and for the greater good is really about, I guess, exchanging lies for the truth, internalizing the truths, and then actually beginning to live like they're true. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is that the events that happen, the bad things that happen to us that feel like they beat the daylights out of us emotionally mm-hmm. and otherwise in some cases, yes, those are true. Those things happen, mm-hmm. but they are not the truth. They are not the essence of who we are. Absolutely. I guess another way to say it, and I didn't come up with this. A mentor I had in college told me this. He said, Gary, you know, what happens to you is important. But what's even more important is the way you interpret and respond to what happens to you. Yeah, what you do with it. Yes, what you do with it. Because how you interpret and respond to what happens ultimately forms the kind of grid through which you see life. I mean, that it, it forms the color we paint our lenses with. And from then on out, from then out, we, we look at life through those lenses. And I think, you know, there is a clinical term for what you describe, which is post-traumatic growth or PTG, right? It's like we transform and transcend those difficult things that happen to us. And when we come out the other side, we are uniquely changed for yes. the positive for having yes. gone through, you know, or traveled through that story. Yes, yes. And the the most valuable thing for me in that is that, you know, if I can find a way, and, and usually I don't have to find it. Usually it's pretty obvious. Um, if I can find a way to take something that is overtly painful or something that has happened and use that as fuel to heal, grow, and then turn it around and use it to make a difference in someone else's life. Well, it reminds me of a phrase, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. It, it just kind of, it turns pain and wounding on its head. And really, if we could say this, it takes the power back. It takes the power back from the pain and the wounds, and maybe even the people who gave us those wounds. And in some senses, in a healthy way, puts us in the driver's seat to say, I have a choice in how I'm going to use this. I have a choice in what is going to flow out of my life um, as a result of what has happened. And I'm going to make sure that whatever that is, that it winds up being for healing and growth for me and for the other people around me. Isn't that a liberation? Yes, it is. That is freedom. Because then imagine that if we could really get that in our in our minds and hearts then we could really live from our heart without having to live in fortress mode, constantly trying to protect ourselves from A, B, C, or D, or living in fortress mode, trying to protect everyone we love from A, B, C, or D. Instead, we can say, 
we know some things are going to happen. We don't know what they are. And when they happen, we are going to find a way to overcome adversity and turn, turn pain into purpose. And we're going to find a way to do that every day, somehow, some way. And uh, what I'm hearing is that you're not suggesting that anybody ignore the hurt. No. The, no. the, the opposite, actually, is what I'm yes. gathering. You know, in, in, in doing grief work, the idea is to go in rather than pull away, right? Yes. Yes. The only way you heal from grief is you go through it. The only yeah. answer to grieving is to grieve. And the hard part is, I think it would be easy for someone listening to me to think that this is easy for me. <laughs> no, you're a consumer of your own of your own counsel, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, or, or that this should be easy for a person. I guess I'm of the philosophy that uh, for years I woke up every morning and uh, I was the eternal optimist, and I still am, I think. But I woke up thinking, okay, today will be smooth. I'm going to make today smooth somehow. I'm going to make a plan, and I'm going to work that plan today. Now, <laughs> How'd that work for you? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, it's not a bad idea. But at the same time, you know, being able to hold things very loosely, knowing that as long as I am working that internal plan like that, it's very hard to be, for me to be present in the moment. Yeah. And the interruptions, the missiles that come at me every day, whether they're well-intentioned or not, just blow my own plan right out of the water. It seemed to be that one day I woke up, not one day, but over a period of years, and decided, okay, you know, here's my plan today, but I know it's not going to work out that way. And this is not a – life is not some straight superhighway. It is more like a meandering uh, path through a very thick overgrown forest and sometimes you forget where you're going and you don't know what's behind the next tree. We better meander off to a break. And when we come back, <laughs> that was well cued. Thank you. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Gary Rowe. We're talking about being a difference maker. That is the title of his book, Difference Maker, Overcoming Adversity and Turning Pain into Purpose Every Day. To learn more about Gary's work, please visit GaryRowe.com, on Twitter at Gary Rowe Author, and on Facebook, Gary Rowe Author as well. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. about the science of healing with my guest today, Gary Rowe. Let's get back to the conversation. 
Gary, you're coming to us from Central Texas, and you have got, I think, a very unique and lovely, if I dare use the word lovely approach to dealing with these hardships, real hardships in life and those that we construct in our minds when they are on overactive duty. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, most of us are on overactive duty. Most of us have been hurt enough that we are unintentionally and automatically scanning the horizon at all times for potential threats. Yeah. And somehow, if we focus on healing from what's happened to us, and I really be, be believe that a majority of the healing from what happens to us uh, really comes from feeling our way through the pain. And there's no easy way through that, but feeling our way through the pain of what has happened, but finding a way to to turn it around and use it for good, and especially using it to serve other people, and especially, if possible, uh, using it to serve other people who really can't give back to us in the same way that we're giving to them. Yes. Then we can see, we can see the visible fruit, I think, of where the grief and pain has brought us, which is uh, we have not only healed from it, but now we're turning it around, using it for good and doling it out to other people uh, as blessing. And that, oh my goodness, just imagine if just 10 people that are listening today committed themselves to doing that to overcoming adversity, turning pain into purpose every day, using their grief as fuel, finding a way to use the painful things that have happened to serve other people for the greater good. My goodness, we would be living in a different place in several months. Yeah. And it's very powerful and very simple, although hard to do, because I think we become wedded to our true the truths that we tell each other with tell ourselves not each other but the truths we tell ourselves about ourselves that are often lies right yes. when you when you really deconstruct that and yes. being willing to face feelings which many of us have been told is just not okay scary run the other way danger 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 that we yes. should just suck it up yes absolutely You know, I when I began to deconstruct some of the lies that I had kind of bought into over the years, all the way back to childhood, you know, it's a long list like I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm not enough, I'm alone, I'm damaged, I'm invisible, I'm I'm ugly. It's all my fault or conversely, the other other direction. Yes, it's all everybody else's fault and nothing in between to beginning to embrace the truths that, you know, I'm I'm unique. Uh, I'm not perfect. Thank goodness. But that's okay. And that it's it's not about my appearance. It's not about my outside at all, uh, it, that I can really heal. I'm not damaged beyond repair, that I'm significant, that I'm lovable. And thank goodness I'm far from alone because we're all in this together. Yeah. And when we really realize that, that, you know, a little soapbox here for me is that uh, because oh, I'm, I, I'm there with you. Don't worry about I, it. You, you know, <laughs> what, one little soapbox is when people use the word independent. You know, I'm an independent person. Um, I, I look at them like, oh, really? You know, I, uh, oh, wow. I used to think of myself as fairly independent, but um, I guess it depends on our definition and semantics and what we're talking about. But for me, no one is ever independent. We are all interdependent. And when we begin to live and act that way, oh, my goodness, the cascade of good begins to uh, I almost said ripple effect, but I don't believe that anymore. You know, the ripple effects 
or like, you know, you, you drop a pond in a lake and the ripple effects occur, right? Yeah. And But they eventually go away. They get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I, I think this is more like a building tsunami where, you know, there is a quake in a person's life of some kind and they decide to turn around and use that for good. And then the pressure for good, the force for good begins to build and it grows over time so that eventually nothing can stand in its way. Yeah. I, I mean, in the sense of it's really a tsunami for good that, that instead of spreading devastation wherever it goes, really spreads things like kindness, goodness, and, and faithfulness and gentleness and love. Oh, goodness. Uh, there's no end to it. Well, the, the state of interdependence is mm. one of, it's rich, and it is a place of solace. It can be. Yes, it can. Of relief, of yes. knowing that we're not alone in the story or what we're going through. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's it's freedom from I don't have to be everything. Yeah, I don't have to be blank enough, whatever that is. I just have to be me because you know who was it? Oscar Wilde said, "Be yourself," because everyone else is t- already taken. And goodness, we can just be ourselves. And really, there's a downside to that when we say, "I'm just going to be myself," and I'm just going to do me. From a selfish point of view, in other words, I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter what anybody else thinks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No matter how expensive it might be. No matter how expensive it might be to me or to anyone else around me. That's one version of that. But the version, of course, we're talking about is that we are all unique individuals through here and we occupy a unique place in time and space history. We're obviously designed for relationship and connection because we come out of the womb screaming for it and look for it all of our lives. And so what we're really talking about is being who we were designed to be, which is people who connect and connect with one another in love and kindness for the greater good, empowering each other that no matter what comes together, we can get through this and use it for good. Yeah. And some listeners might say, oh, that just sounds so goody two shoes, you know, as long as, <laughs> yes, as long it does. as it does. But people will say, well, well, as long as I uh, feel like I'm part of the same tribe. And I, mm-hmm. I believe that the philosophy that you're sharing means that we accept everyone mm-hmm. regardless of of mm-hmm. their color. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or complexion, let's put it that way, whether it, whether you've been beaten up by life or had a good, yes. uh, a fairly easy, you know, uh, silver spoon life, no matter yes. where you come from. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, our needs as humans, they're the same, regardless of what the story is. That's exactly right. You know, fundamentally, I think it's it's a desire to be seen and heard and loved and to love and to be loved. In other words, to see and hear and love and to be seen and heard and loved. No matter what we look like, no matter where we came from, no matter our political or spiritual affiliation, if we have some of those, no matter what kind of tags come with us and what kind of baggage we might be carrying along, uh, the same is true. You know, we're, we're very independent. Those are our needs And goodness, um, when we don't get our needs met and when we don't engage as the difference makers that we were designed to be, 
our hearts slowly die. You know, they're just slowly silenced by all the noise and everything else around us. And we can't we can't afford to let that happen. We're all just too important and too valuable to let that happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it comes down to love being the secret salve that heals, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'm asked that, like, what do you think it is that helps Mm -hmm. someone heal? And every time I'm asked the question, I come up with the same answer, like, really? I'm like, well, it's not really an (laughs) antidepressant. No, you know, (laughs) that might help. But ultimately, it does come down to love. It really does. I think when we begin to taste that from another person, and I think we begin to taste it when we begin to give it. Mm, I guess, yeah, (laughs) I guess it begins to enrich our experience of being loved when we actually love other people. Um, Or ourselves, if we we start with ourselves. Or, you know, I, I tried to illustrate this in the book because I said one of the lies we often believe is I'm invisible. Nobody sees me. Nobody sees me. Nobody knows me for who I really am. Now, to some degree, that's true because nobody else is in our own hearts but us. But even we don't know ourselves, really. So anyway, but the corresponding truth is really not so much that I'm not invisible, but the corresponding truth is as I see other people really see them, I will be seen in turn by those who want to see me. I'm not going to be seen by everybody. I'm not going to be seen by everybody. I'm not going to be liked by everybody. I'm not going to be loved by everybody. But as I extend myself to see others, hear others, and love others, you know what? I'm going to be seen and heard and loved by those who want to do that for me in return. Or sometimes not even in return. They just want to do that for me, period. Yeah. I'm closing my eyes and I'm hearing your words. And I think, you know, what? this is a uh, a blessing for one's life you know, to really, to walk on this path of Mm. showing up where there is need and committing to be a difference maker. Maker. Yeah. Maker, a crafter that, that means that that we, with our hands and with our resources. We're creating something. Yes. 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 I think I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I get it too. I'm not sure, you know, it, You know, one of the things that I've gotten that's really helped me, I've developed and trying to develop the discipline of seeing what I call invisible people on a daily basis. These are the people that as I just go here and there, they're the people that you don't often notice. The person in the car next to you, the food service worker, the grocery store stalker, the janitorial staff, for example, in an assisted living facility or nursing homes, which I often frequent. And just being able to see them, look at their name tag. Most of them have name tags. And find some way to say, hey, Ralph, I want you to know this place smells great today. And I'm not lying. It really does smell great. Can you imagine what this place would smell like if you didn't clean it for us? Yes. Thank thank you. I get it. (laughs) Thank you for doing what you do so that I can come here and walk in the door and go, wow, and do my job better, too. You make all of us better, Ralph. Thank you. I mean, how hard is that? I don't think that's very hard. And the responses that I have gotten, I mean, they look at me stunned and shocked at first because nobody else talks like this, but or or it doesn't not to them anyway. And then some of them cry. Some of them tear up. Some of them hug me. Some of them just continue to stare at me in stunned silence. But most of them break into this smile. And when I go to bed at night, I think, hmm, wonder what they did with the rest of their day. Wonder. Wonder if, 
as we see another person and they know they've been seen by us, it somehow empowers them to see other people. It is, it really is a building tsunami, not a trickling out, you know, ripple effect. If we can just begin to see the people around us, engage with them and affirm them. Oh my goodness. I think it'd make a huge difference. It's just a little, it's a little sliver of a thing, but at the same time, I think huge difference making can come from it and our own hearts benefit when we do that. We're talking about Difference Maker, overcoming adversity and turning pain into purpose every day. My amazing guest, who I am throwing a virtual hug around right now, <laughs> is Gary Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find out more about Gary's beautiful work at GaryRowe.com, on Twitter, Gary Rowe Author, and on Facebook, Gary Rowe Author. Gary, come back and hang out with me anytime. I love our conversations. Thank you, Lisa. Likewise. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my guest today, Dr. James S. Gordon and Gary Rowe, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day in safety and health. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.